And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined in person for a change with Bruce Feldman. This is like a home game for you, Stu, even though you have come to uh, the Fox Sports Red Box Bowl Hotel down the street from you. Uh, I brought a suitcase. You're, to... not, you're not moving in here, Stu. Uh. <laughs> if, that's what, if you're trying to insinuate, no. I have this room for one night, and even though it's a big room, this is this is the extent of your stay. So you, you guys tuned in thinking we were going to be talking about the playoff games, but in fact, we're here for the Red Box Bowl, and we're going to do a full Cal, Illinois... No, just kidding. No, no. No, um, basically, I, I flew in from... Bruce flew in... Did you fly in last night or this morning from Atlanta? No, this morning. I, yeah. And I just flew in. I literally just got in from Phoenix and came here uh, because why not? Let's do the podcast in person before I head home. Um, before we get into the games, I think we should start with this. Uh, as a lot of you probably already know, uh, one of our colleagues and friends... Uh, Edward Ashoff, who worked at, at ESPN and was a longtime writer for ESPN.com, uh, passed away rather suddenly around Christmas on his 34th birthday. Um, it was pretty devastating news, to be honest. I knew Ed very well, and I actually met him the same time I think Stu did, and he was in college, and I remember this was the Florida, week. Oklahoma, uh, Florida versus... Florida versus Ohio Oklahoma. State. No, Florida versus Oklahoma in Miami. In Miami. Sam Nas Bradford. Yeah, national yeah. title game. And uh, I think I remember him beating you in Wii Tennis. Oh, yeah. That's my – I not only do I remember that, and I was like the first uh, story I tell about him, but he reminded me about it for years afterward. Yeah, and then I remember running into him at a bar and brought him over to meet uh, my editor at ESPN Magazine at the time in the bar and just thinking, okay, you know, at some point, I bet you we're going to end up hiring this guy. And they did. Um, and Ed lived in Los Angeles uh, with his fiance, and so I would see him quite a bit. And he started doing games remotely uh, and worked on, on uh, mostly when I saw him for ESPN radio doing games. And they did a couple of the games that our crew was doing TV games for. So I would see him a lot. And um, just, you know, for me, Ed, and for a lot of people I know who worked with him back at ESPN, felt like a little brother. Because first of all, he looked like he was 19 years old, even recently. Um, and just just for me also, it was kind of just so devastating because the last text exchange I had with him was he, him telling me he was in the ER and had pneumonia. And I remember, looked back at my response and it was like, anything I can do to help? And he was like, no, nah, I got medicine. Um, and you just figured he was gonna bounce back and instead it went the other direction and and just heartbreaking and feel for his fiance, Katie, and, and just, uh, you know, can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. You were the one who called and told me the news on Christmas Eve. I was uh, getting ready to go to dinner with my wife and daughter, and I didn't know he had, had pneumonia. I didn't know he was sick. I had seen him most recently at the USC Oregon game in early November, and obviously he kept tweeting about college, but it just never occurred to me that, that anything was off. And uh, so it, it, I couldn't comprehend it at first. Um, I think the only, you know, the positive thing for us in the college football media community is that we were all together at these playoff games this week. And so I have to give a lot of credit to the man sitting next to me. It was his idea. Ed was known as the sharpest dresser of any college football writer in, in the country. Uh, he would dazzle us with his suit combos. And one of his signatures was the flower lapel pin. 
it was Bruce's idea for as many of us as possible to wear flower lapel pins at the bowl games. And uh, a lot of people didn't weren't able to get it in time. So I think at the national championship game in New Orleans, you will see. Uh, I mean, they, the ESPN, to their credit, to get game day guys wore them. Uh, but a lot, I know a lot of people just weren't able to get them in time. So I would think at New Orleans, any of our colleagues who are listening to us right now, uh, I want to see hopefully as many people as possible pay tribute to Ed. Um, obviously, again, our condolences to his fiancee, Katie. Um, the games themselves, which one do you want to start with? I mean, let's start with the game that was the most compelling one, and that was the game you were at. Uh, you know, it was as good as advertised, and I thought it was a terrific performance. Uh, certainly, Trevor Lawrence did a lot of damage with his legs, and that ended up being the difference. Um, what I'd like to ask you about is, so you're there watching the game. It's a little different than watching on TV. And it's also different when you you know kind of let it sink in. I'm sitting there reading about it, the, you know, on my flight back too, and you know a lot came, a lot was made of the officiating and overturned calls. Um, what do you like? What will you remember from this game? Yeah. So people who know who know my work or have heard me say this before on Twitter, I'm the last person to get worked up over officiating controversies or officiating conspiracy theories. And I generally feel like these things even themselves out. And um, I don't know, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. But I will say that I've rarely seen a game change so much. The whole course of the game changed so much, not once but twice, based on replay overturns. Clemson was getting absolutely dominated in this game. Ohio State was controlling both lines of scrimmage. It looked, it really did look early on like Clemson, like we were heading toward a possible outcome where people would be like, well, see what happens. They didn't play anybody all year, and now they meet Ohio State, and they get totally exposed. It was 16-0. And, they were, and, and it appears that um, Sean Wade, Ohio State cornerback, has sacked Trevor Lawrence on third down, and they're going to have to give the ball back. And instead, that is on replay a, t- a targeting call and so the impact of that not just of him getting ejected but of them getting new life on that drive going down and scoring and then getting a quick three and out and, and then trevor lawrence's big touchdown run it went from 16 nothing feeling like it was a completely one-sided game to 16 14 going to the half like with a snap of a finger at that point it's it's game on um the targeting one, it's its just like our colleague Andy Staples wrote. It was, by the letter of the law, it was targeting. It's unfortunate that a guy can get ejected and, and the whole course of the game change on a play that he probably couldn't have done much to avoid it. And, and you know, that's the part of that rule that always bothers me is that there's, there's no exception or there's no leniency when, in this case, he was going to go in for a totally legal hit, and then Trevor Lawrence, seeing that he's about to get sacked, braces for impact, lowers his head, and that causes the head-to-head collision. Well, well I, they did revise, you know, they've, they've revised the targeting rule somewhat, and there is that. And I, I, you know, for people who haven't read Andy's column yet, I would say read it. And I do think, though, you know, the three calls that were questionable, two were pretty clear that they weren't quite that questionable right i mean the targeting was targeting people don't like it like it but it was that and also the dobbins you know review that he did that a catch yeah catching the end zone wasn't a catch wasn't a catch yeah that wasn't controversial obviously the huge controversial one was what whether it was a catch or not and then it gets overturned and instead of a scoop and score it's not so that's in the third quarter at that point uh clemson is taken the lead this is ohio state's chance to reclaim the lead uh touchdown and uh it gets wiped off the board now let me ask you before you get to that yeah and this this is irrelevant but i want to i'm just curious if you agree with it those other two calls at some point i'm sure a lot of ohio state fans minds were questionable yeah if you take those two out and there's one questionable call. I'm sure there are still going to be people who are, who are irate about it. Look, I mean, you know, last year the Saints-Rams game had a brutal missed call, and it doesn't take away from it. I wondered if you would get some people who are trying to make these conspiracy theory discussion, even though Ohio State 
is a ratings juggernaut. And oh, believe and, me, look at my Twitter mentions or the comments to the stories we wrote. There, Ohio State fans are are all in on the uh, conspiracy theories, and then the other fans are laughing at them because they won a national title in two thousand two on uh, you know one of the all time infamous uh, questionable the calls. Terry Porter call, yeah. You know, the way I look at it is, at the end of the day, you know, if that targeting call doesn't get called like it did, it's possible Ohio State would have gone on and won in a route. But so it changed the course of the game that way. However, even after all that, Ohio State had the lead with three minutes left. Just don't let Trevor Lawrence drive 94 yards in four plays. And even after that, Justin Fields and J.K. Dobbins, they get down into the uh, inside the Clemson 25 with a chance to win the game. And Fields throws the interception when uh, his receiver, unfortunately, broke off route when he wasn't supposed to. So... It's not like those calls. I don't think anybody can say those calls cost them the game. Those sequences in the final minutes cost them the game. We'll always wonder if the game would have gone completely differently if those calls had been different, but they, it didn't keep them from winning the game. They had two chances in the final three minutes to either end the game or reclaim the lead and win the game. Do you think the better team won? Ha! Huh, great question. Uh, I think they were two. I thought going in they were two evenly matched teams, and I came away from it thinking they were two evenly matched teams. It was not a, there was no talent gap. There was this was not a matter of, you know, Clemson came out and showed that they're definitively better than Ohio State, but they won. They're the champion. They showed to me it was another. After all, you know, they were kind of off the radar for for much of the season, out clobbering these ACC teams, and it was a nice reminder, like, oh yeah, by the way, for all this time we spent on Joe Burrow and Justin Fields, like Trevor Lawrence. He's still really good. J.K. Uh, uh, Travis Etienne, he's still really good. Uh, Isaiah Simmons, he's really good. You know, it was uh, uh, it was just one of those games that, that came down to the final second. It was extremely dramatic. To answer to, well, something you said before, no, I'm not going to, I don't think, I would hope that if I remember this game five years from now, the first thing that comes to my mind won't be a, a overturned scoop and score. It would hopefully be, you know, you know how cool it is when you're down on the sideline in the last five minutes of a game where that you at that moment don't know how it's going to end, don't know what's going to be the defining play. Certainly standing there, I got down there right when Clemson was about to start his drive. They're at their own six. The first play, Trevor Lawrence, um, I think was a slant pass to Justin Ross. And I remember thinking, he's going to at least get them in field goal range. It's just, you can just tell this is going to be one of those drives. But Clemson has struggled so much with field goals that that might not have been mm -hmm. enough. Obviously, they did not expect them to do it in four plays. The, the, the yeah, jump. I think they scored too early. I remember saying yeah. that. I'm, I'm watching it with some other some other media members, and I'm like, whoa, they scored too soon, which it felt like they did. And the jump pass, what a, what a perfect call that was. Uh, they said after the game that, well, Trevor Lawrence said that he didn't like, you know, during the week, he didn't like that play. It, was, it wasn't going right. Uh, too much had, there was too many ways it could go wrong if the defense didn't bite. Uh, but then during the course of the game, they ran him so much, which was completely, I mean, remember, I, I was sitting next to people in the press box who were like, all game, I can't believe that they're letting Trevor Lawrence run more than Travis Etienne. Well, that was their response to the way Ohio State plays defense with man coverage. They thought they could uh, exploit them up the middle a little bit with Trevor's legs. Their offensive line was not really able to block Ohio State well, well enough. Chase Young didn't go wild. No, I mean, he didn't, but I mean in, in run defense. Like, they couldn't uh, – there just wasn't – Travis Etienne wasn't breaking into big holes like J.K. Dobbins did on his early runs. But they got him out there as a receiver, and he catches yeah, what ended up being the game-winning touchdown. He's obviously very explosive. I mean, that was the play. I remember watching it again Sunday morning and just like, looks like he shot out of a cannon running through a fast defense. And one thing – and it's weird because as you're, you're, you know, making predictions – the one edge where I felt like Clemson had it was experience. It was certainly Trevor Lawrence had done it, but also I think more importantly, uh, Dabo Sweeney had done it. And I think, and I don't want to say anybody was out coached. That's not where I'm going, but I do think the experience and the confidence, Hey, we're going to find a way to win. That stuff matters. And a lot of times that stuff matters more than X and O's stuff. And mm -hmm. I think one thing that we, and again, before we get to the national title matchup, but I think the, the thing that is a very relevant takeaway is the two head coaches right now who are on top of their games 
are guys who are not coordinators, but there are guys who set the tone for their teams probably more than anybody right now does in college football, and that's Dabo with Clemson and Ed Ogeron with the other Tigers at LSU. And I just think when you get teams that believe, because um, now I've seen it, I've been around LSU a couple times where they are getting better as the season goes on, and their confidence is sky high. And I, again, I think Clemson has that belief. It's in them. And that's why they play well on big stages. I mean, they did it against Alabama more than once. And they did it against a team that, I don't know, I feel like, and I'm not saying they're the, the, the better team, but I feel like in some way, whether it's Chase Young or the guys they have in the secondary, it's not to take anything away from my, you know, Simmons or you know any one of these other guys. But I feel like if you want to evaluate it in terms of NFL talent i feel like ohio state probably has as much talent nfl talent as anybody and yet clemson found a way to win clemson found a way to win after giving up two 60 plus yard runs to jk dobbins early in the game he did did appear he hurt his ankle and was in and out of the game there for a little bit and wasn't as explosive down the stretch ohio state obviously cost themselves a lot of opportunities but you're absolutely right And, and this is despite the fact that they'd only played one close game all season and yet you know, Jeff Scott, their co-OC, who's going to be going on to USF after the playoff, you know, he, I kept, I must have heard him tell the story three different times in the, in the post game about Trevor Lawrence gathering his, his teammates before that drive. And it, he's like, it was exactly like Deshaun Watson in the huddle before the game winning drive against uh, Alabama. So how many programs have that kind of, you know, institutional experience that, yeah, go down, drive 90 yards and win a playoff game. Sure. We can do that. We've done that before. I don't think you can really say Ohio State's inexperience was an issue. I mean, obviously that, like I said, self-inflicted mistakes. But for his but first you, time, but you have a, you also like not just like one of them is there were little decisions, you know, when you rough the kicker and yep. different things where it's like situational stuff like that. Whether it's in the red zone, um, those things came back to bite them. Well, Ryan Day had a great call on the fourth and one when they went for it, and not only went for it, but took their shot in the end zone and scored the go-ahead touchdown. But then he turned around and, and kicked an extra point up one, which I didn't really understand. Um, I think this has got to be really – it's got to be – it's got to really sting for Ohio State, and not just because of the officiating part of it. Just, you know, Ari Wasserman, our, our Ohio State, one of our two Ohio State writers, he's been covering them for, I think, since 09. And he has said – he said all week, he said this – is the best Ohio State team I've covered. Better, even better than the 2014 one. This was their best shot to, uh, you know, break through and end this run of Clemson and uh, Clemson and the SEC, and came up short. And now we've got for the fifth straight season and seventh time in nine years two two Southern teams in the championship game. Okay, LSU. Like you said, you've seen them now the last two games. You see them keep getting better and better. That has to that has to go. What Joe Burrow did, throwing seven touchdowns in a half yeah. of a college football playoff game. He's now thrown eleven touchdowns in his past two games, and they were both against teams that were ranked number four in the country at the time. We've never we've never seen a quarterback play at this high level on this stage. No, and I think what you see with them is, and I wrote about this a little bit after the game. It is a pick your poison offense. It happened to be uh, Justin Jefferson's time to just eat up, you know, a really undermanned secondary. When I say undermanned, yeah, they were down uh, Delarian Turner Yell, who's a who's a good safety. I mean, it's not like he's Grant Delpit back there, but it didn't matter who OU had back there. It's, you know, in the secondary, I mean, I did four Oklahoma's games. There was no way they were going to stay with them. I think from from hearing from some OU coaches after the game, one of the big takeaways was we knew they were good we didn't know they were this fast and i think until they were out there seeing what they were dealing with it's a whole different animal um you know i've seen i've not seen in clemson in person this year i've obviously seen ohio state now i've seen lsu up close twice saturday was the first time i i don't i really kind of resonated with i think lsu is going to win the national title i didn't think that three weeks ago I wasn't sure about where they were, but then you watched how they dominated Georgia. Uh, their defense, you know, people I think read way too much into what happened when they were up four touchdowns against Ole Miss and Grant Delpit is hurt. No, oh, the statistics are, you know, whatnot. Um, 
there isn't a guy in the front seven who is a top 10 pick. But they're really good in the secondary. And they are really physical and sound up front. And you're going to have to get in a shootout with them. Because the way Joe Burrow is playing, he's playing, as you said, he's playing better than any quarterback. Uh, They have really good receivers who just take over games. Uh, Thaddeus Moss is a very good weapon for them. They did this mostly without Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. I mean, he played, he could have played more, but they weren't going to give him more than 15 snaps. Um, He's healthy, going to be healthy in a couple of weeks. He's a real difference maker for them because he's so versatile. And what they're really good at is creating mismatches. And uh, I had a great comment from from uh, Dave Aranda after the game. We talked about it, and he was the guy. He's obviously LSU's defensive coordinator, and he saw it in spring. It was the first time LSU's offense had really whipped LSU's defense in the spring. And he, the analogy was, he's like, it's like a virus. You know, they attack you from the inside out, and whatever you're doing, it's like they shut you down. And I'm very interested to see how Brent Venables is going to deal with it because. And again, I, I, I'm not predicting anything close to what happened in the Peach Bowl, but they have not faced. There are not passing games like this in the SEC, in the ACC. Nothing close to it. Now Ohio State has a, has a has firepower, but this is a different kind of offense, and this quarterback is a different kind of passer than they've than they've seen all year. And it's not like they completely shut Ohio State down. Um, you know, in the end of the day, they got. Justin Fields has only thrown one pick all year, and he threw two in this game. So credit to Clemson for that. They and he almost threw three. I mean, one got called. Yeah, back. they they you know held them out of the end zone on several different occasions. But it wasn't this wasn't a you know vintage Brent Venables dominant defense. And after the game, uh, I was around in the group talking to Venables. A he basically admitted that he was very skeptical going into the season that they could even do this with all the guys they lost. And B, you know multiple people tried to ask him about LSU and it was almost like somebody had brought up like an old enemy of his. He was like, geez, I don't want to talk about that. Like he's, he's, he's watched them and he's like, good guy. We have to play those guys. Um, nobody has found the answer yet. Auburn found it for like a half. They came out in a funky defense and, and, threw they, them adjusted, off, yeah. and they adjusted and that was the end of that. Um, I, rem- I think back to being at the LSU Alabama game and being in Nick Saban's press conference and asking him, how, you know, at that point we were still trying to wrap our heads around the fact, like, how did they get so much better from last year or this year? And he just said, what they're doing now is completely different than what they were doing before, and their offense has no weaknesses. And I think that when you watch Burrow, and it just seems like he knows he knows exactly where to throw the ball in every play, he improvises so well. It's just your perfect combination of it's just this perfect storm of a system that caught everybody by surprise, a quarterback who runs it perfectly, these amazing receivers, great offensive line, great running back. So it was a, one one thing that was interesting. John Robinson, legendary coach, old USC coach. Uh, when I was around, and this was not my story that I did, I didn't have room for it. But we were watching practice, and he was like, you know who he reminds me of, and he being Joe Burrow. He's like, he reminds me of Joe Montana. Which is in a comparison I hadn't heard. Now he coached against him in college, and then he coached against him a lot of times when he was with the Rams, and obviously Montana was with the 49ers. And the things you hear about that I think probably don't get enough credit because a lot of times people get so fixated on arm strength, but it's the poise. He's incredibly accurate, uh, and he's a really, really good athlete and throws well on the run. And that's one of the things that Robinson said was he was like, you know, Joe Montana was a great basketball player. Joe Burrow was a great basketball player. And so I think a lot of these traits have carried over. And he's in a really good system that he's immersed himself in. And the the last piece of this is they are playing with a ton of confidence. Like that's the thing that I cannot like I can write a story about it and I can try to show it, but until you're around it and feel it, like they are as loose uh right before the game as they are three days before the game and that's pretty unique it was not like that uh before and that's changed and that's why i think they're playing at such a high level now so based on everything you're saying it seems to me that your early thought is are you do you think lsu is going to route i mean and the game's in new orleans do you think lsu is going to beat them handily 
I wouldn't say that because that's not fair to, to, to Clemson. I think Clemson has more athletes in the defense than certainly Oklahoma has. And I think that Trevor Lawrence, first of all, Travis Etienne to me is is much better than, it's a home game for him too, by the way. He's a Louisiana guy. But it is uh, much better than Kennedy Brooks. And I think that, yes, I would put C.D. Lamb up against any receiver Oklahoma has. But there's a big drop off from C.D. Lamb to the other guys right now. And I, you know, look, with with all due respect to Jalen Hurts, Jalen Hurts isn't anywhere near the passer that Trevor Lawrence is. Jalen Hurts holds on to the ball too long sometimes. He needs to see it. And I think that that kind of stuff, especially against the defense that has really good secondary guys, they got pressure on him. They made some negative plays early. And I think if you're going to get in that situation, um, you know, you're going to have to be in a shootout with them. And I just don't think you can do that. You know, Oklahoma might be able to do that with Baker right. or Kyler Murray. They couldn't get in that with Jalen Hurts. It's just he may throw, he may make some impressive passes. I don't think he consistently can do that. Jalen Hurts is going to go down in college football history as having one of the, the most um, unusual careers you could possibly have, both in terms of he, he played in four straight playoffs. He all that stuff we all know that stuff well but at the end of the day like for all he accomplished i think the last impression of him is kind of what people are going to remember just yeah he he's he's okay but he wasn't, no, he's more he wasn't okay. the guy That's not he's good but he wasn't the guy he wasn't i mean he got passed up by Tua, and he wasn't kyler he got he played at these two programs where he was being measured against these truly elite quarterbacks and he couldn't obviously he wasn't in their league um i think that's being a little harsh to be honest you're the one who just said he, he couldn't. Well, you brought I mean, it up. Well, you're just, I mean, you just said he was okay. He wasn't, you know, like. That's, that's not kind enough, I yeah, agree. Yeah, I still think he's, you know, a fantastic college player. But, you know, I don't know if we were to do, and I'm not saying we do this now. Like, to me, Baker Mayfield is probably one of the 10 best college players that's played in our era, you know. So I think there's that. And to say he's not at that level. Um, I don't think that's a slight. Yeah, I mean, I think Jalen never, he was a fantastic athlete. He made so many great plays at both teams with his feet. And early on this season, based on what he was doing against teams that you would eventually come to realize weren't that good, you're like, wow, look at all those strides he's made as a passer. And then as the schedule got tougher and the season went on, he started to struggle. He started to turn it over. It became apparent also that C.D. Lamb, after, like you said, like C.D. Lamb was amazing. After that, it wasn't like there's drop off. I remember Greg Calcaterra's career. He was a he's a really good player, and he was kind of a difference maker. His career got cut short. He stopped. You know, he was no longer playing. They had some injuries at running back, and they did. You know what? They did have to replace four linemen. And just being around LSU, especially on Friday when they were going through this a lot of their scouting stuff, that offensive line was nowhere near as good as I think we thought it was. And I think one thing that, that stood out to me that I thought of more and more is this was not a great year in the Big 12 in terms of offense. Right. You know, it just I think there's some talented young quarterbacks, but they're young quarterbacks. You know, both certainly Brock Purdy, Max Duggan, you know, they're they're good they're good young quarterbacks, but there wasn't like it wasn't like Texas Tech had like a Pat Mahomes isn't there anymore. And they just so I think Yes, Oklahoma got better on defense, but in the, I want to spin this forward a little bit because now Oklahoma has lost four games on the biggest stage. Mm-hmm. They've, they've gotten blown up in terms of defensively and outclassed the last three times. Georgia, you know, in the game in the Rose Bowl where they went toe-to-toe, but eventually the defense broke. The other uh, three were blowouts. Yeah, and so here we are with them. And actually, I mean, blowouts is maybe a little strong, but this was the first time Lincoln Riley in his first three years as a head coach had never lost by more than 11 points. Hmm. And this one, they could have lost by 60. Yeah. You know, so, and I, I think the issue here is, I mean, he's a great play caller. He's a terrific offensive coach. They have not recruited well enough on defense to be a real threat i mean to and, win a national title. and he'll fully admit that 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 you know once he get, he hired alex grinch that wasn't just about changing the scheme that was i need a good recruiter who can drastically upgrade the talent on defense no question i feel bad for oklahoma because i think whoever they they had put in that fourth spot was going to lose badly maybe not that badly i mean i do think there was a bit of a floodgate opening there with all the suspensions and then 
uh, targeting, losing your your other safety that, to that, targeting. Honestly, whether he played or not, he was going to get lit up. I, I'm sorry. Ouch. <laughs> That's much meaner than what I said about well, Jalen Hurts. He's, he's not Jalen Hurts. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, a, he's a solid player. I mean, him. you know, the, the, the team that finished fifth was Georgia. They got blown out by them, too. You want to put Oregon in there? Maybe they don't give up 63, but they're going to lose. Like, whoever they put in that spot was going to lose. Oklahoma was the one. Oklahoma, you know, played Baylor twice. And there was. What did you think about the, the, um, the Brody Miller, our LSU writer, had a. An anonymous quote from somebody at LSU saying they didn't even think Oklahoma was a top 15 team. That seems harsh. That seems a little over overstated just because you may say that, but then you you may say they don't seem like a top 15 team, but then you try to name 15 Right. Teams. I think the more apt one was uh, Ross Dellinger, who covered them for a long time and is at SI now, had another, I think, LSU source saying to him that they were the fifth best team they they played. Well, that's probably probably true. That's probably true because you know, look, they. I know those guys thought Auburn was very good. Obviously, Alabama is good. They Florida played them tough, and then you get Georgia, who they crushed. But Georgia's a big physical team. I don't know. I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that. But Georgia's less likely to get blown off the field because they have enough. Because they have a defense. defense. Whereas now they don't have the same firepower that. Uh, that Oklahoma has, but I mean, you're nitpicking there. Well, I think the issue in college football right now is the the power has shifted so thoroughly to the South because of because that's where the great best recruits are. That's who spends the most money. You know, Clemson's not in the SEC, but they are basically well, Ohio State. Like an that SEC we just program. said is as much talent. They as are the one, right? So you know that stat I brought up earlier, which I tweeted last night: five straight championship games of two Southern teams, seven of the last nine going back to the. Uh, Alabama LSU 2011 game. I think right now in college football, the only program outside the South that is recruits well enough and is coached well enough and has all the resources to compete with those premier Southern teams, Ohio State. I don't. You can point to whoever you want: Oklahoma, Penn State, Michigan. Certainly nobody in the Pac-12 right now. Oregon's trying to get there. There's just nobody. So you can you can put. I think you could expand the playoff to 32. You're still not going to get. A team that can hang with on an, on the biggest stage with whoever with Clemson and with whoever happens to be the best team in the SEC that year. I feel like it's it's really we're talking about right now. We're talking about three teams and Ohio State. Maybe we could we could stick Georgia in there. They've certainly got the star ranking stuff. Yeah, but I don't think you know. To me, this is those schools, and I think what separates right now. Uh, like what's what's interesting is if you look at LSU's recruiting rankings, I mean I'll go through the list. Like rivals had Joe Burrow a three star, Clyde Edwards-Helaire three star, Justin Jefferson two star. The best two linemen they have three star guys. I I think it's a little bit of an oversimplification to just say on that, but I think what they do have in common is they are well resourced in terms of the staff sizes that they have. Um, at LSU, I mean, they have a ton of brain power that is that are in the analyst and GA roles, I and mean, they have a, a grad assistant tight ends coach, John DeCoster, who he signed the number one tight end in the country, in Eric Gilbert from Georgia, who's a top ten player. He's got Thaddeus Moss, who like raves about working with him. Thaddeus Moss is. I don't know if he like if they were to evaluate like the Mackey Award, Thaddeus Moss would get a lot more votes now because he keeps getting better and better. Yeah. And so we have guys like that who are coaching in different roles. I think that can't be can't be uh, kind of underscored enough. And so to me, and you you said this before about you know the money and the resources, that's a big part of it. And Alabama had that for years, right? And you know, we've seen other schools have had it. Auburn certainly have had it. Georgia to some degree. And look, Georgia had guys who in 2018 were analysts who now are both the offensive, offense and defensive coordinators at Colorado. You know, they were analysts off the field for Kirby Smart. And that kind of brain power um, helps in preparation. It's invaluable. And so I think that's the piece that is, is um, and just as a little aside to this, on Friday night, the last meeting that the team had at LSU in their hotel, when it started, Ogeron has, he has all the GAs and analysts stand up and 
basically the team salutes them. And before long, it's a standing ovation for those guys for what they do. And I just think that that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I don't think you're seeing that, you know, at, at a lot of these quote unquote big time programs in different parts of the country, they don't have that. They Right now, they're not committed to it. All right. So who is the list? You, you would know, like, outside of the SEC and Clemson, which programs do you think have the infrastructure in terms of all that support staff of Alabama, LSU, et cetera? I know Ohio State does. Michigan might. Michigan's had some some of those kinds of guys on their on their bench or guys like that who are who are doing film breakdowns and and, and in that piece of it. What about Penn State? Penn State has a few of those guys. Because I I bring up Penn State specifically for this reason. So they had a not great um, Cotton Bowl win over Memphis, uh, where they kind of you got to see all these running backs that all year you're like, man, it seems like they have a lot of good running backs. When are they all going to break out? And they did. They ended up 11-2. and two. We both think James Franklin's a really good coach, despite all his various critics out there. So, And then Michael Parsons had a huge game. All of this is building toward when I do my early, early top 25, I'm pretty sure Penn State's going to be pretty high up in it. But can spin it forward a year. Let's say they, they unseat Ohio State, ceiling. they break through. Are they going to be able to do, do any better than Oklahoma or whoever else has gotten their shot here uh, in the playoff era? It's a good question because you, it's hard to have any kind of weaknesses. Like I, it's, I'm glad you brought up Penn State. So Penn State, obviously, Micah Parsons has a great, you know, he's a top ten talent whenever he is able to leave because he's just so freaky explosive. Oklahoma has a guy. I'm not saying he's quite at that level, but Kenneth Murray will run in the four fours. He's a guy NFL scouts I've talked to think is a is a first round pick kind of guy, and they have a couple of guys. The problem is, and even you saw this, I think, if you, you know, I watched a lot of the Memphis game. And Memphis has good speed and a good scheme. And Penn State is not great in the secondary, especially in the corners. And so, you know, when you look at a team, like right now you look at LSU, their defensive front isn't awesome, but it's pretty good. Their linebackers are pretty good to very good. And their secondary is outstanding. So there's no you know, kind of weaknesses. Right. Oklahoma has weaknesses, has glaring weaknesses, especially on the back end. And eventually when you play at that high level, it gets exposed. Wisconsin, you know, play at that high level, it gets exposed. And the one thing, you know, you and I have talked probably too much about star system and recruiting stuff. But the one thing I think it does happen is there is more of a safety net when you get more usually the guys who are end up as four star guys or five star guys are body type guys. And so they're they're bigger or something, and it gives you a little more. I mean, it is a story about Mel Tucker in Colorado and his kind of recruiting model now. And he's talking about how small your margin for error is if you do not have the measurables, especially as a receiver, a defensive back, or as an edge player. And it's hard to argue with that when you see, you know, you have a great quarterback. If you have Johnny Manziel playing or if you have Trace McSorley playing, you can overcome a lot of stuff. But your margin for error is still going to be really tight, and that's the part where I don't know. I like I like you know Kirk Sharaka. I think is a good hire by Penn State. We'll see how much better Sean Clifford can get. We'll see who comes back, who doesn't leave early. Um, but they, you know, they I don't know with Ohio State they have so many more good players, right? And that's the part where it's you can beat them, but it's hard, and you don't have much more margin for error, and that's the difference. I mean. You know, LSU's first team D-line is not much different from its second team D-line. And that's kind of the way, I mean, Chase Young is Chase Young, but Ohio State has a great second D-line. I mean, you don't want to see the second teamers at OU, you know? It, it's, it's an interesting time in college football to me because there's probably, um, I don't know, 15, 20 fan bases out there who expect their program to contend for national championships. And I think there's only maybe three or four that can right now. Now, some of those programs are completely like Miami, right? They they want to win national championships. They can't even beat uh, Louisiana Tech in the yeah. Independence Bowl. Like some of these programs are so far from that, it's not even worth discussing. But, you know, uh, USC wants to win national titles and, and uh, Penn State, Notre Dame. Notre Dame's another one, kind of like Penn State. They just finished up in 11 and 2. See, that's a great season. And nobody would have thought if you stuck them in instead of Oklahoma that they would have fared any better. So um, I don't know. And then, of course, that leads to people saying, oh, it's got to be a bigger playoff. you got to give these teams opportunities. And 
that would mean that would give more fan bases the feeling that like they're part of the big show, but the same three or four teams would be ahead of everybody else. Back to the podcast in a second. We talk about physical fitness a lot, but there's another side of the game that's just as important. I'm talking about mental fitness. Calm, the number one app for sleep and meditation, has teamed up with LeBron James to help you train your mind. LeBron and Calm know that your mind is like any other muscle in your body, and Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, have less stress, and perform at your best. And if you head to calm.com audible, you'll get 40% off a Calm premium membership. For a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron in using Calm with a 40% discount to an annual membership at calm.com audible. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better. Get started at calm.com slash audible. That's calm.com slash audible. So I would ask you this because uh, Dan Wilkins sat next to me at the at the Peach Bowl and he finished a column like like a half <laughs> second quarter. Like about, <laughs> and his, his, his argument or his case was kind of what you're saying, which is like people who, who think they should expand the playoff to eight teams, and I am one of them, um, just witnessed why it's a bad idea. And the one thing I would say, and I actually brought this up to him, is uh, Ohio State, they were number four seed when they won, right? Yeah. Like, I do think certain years break better than well, others. Well, yeah. Every year in college football is different. This this happened to be this a year was, where there was, was three that. elite teams. Yeah, and some years there's two, and some years there may be five. And some years I think, there's none. Right. And I, But I think what can happen is you could get it. Why I think the, the, the eight is a good reason. I think I have two reasons for it. One is on the front end, which is I do think it's better for the sport to have – you know, it's kind of a beauty contest. You know, whether you're, whether you're Oregon or Oklahoma, um, you know, I think it's weird to have the power five and leave one out and pick pick another one. I just think that conference championships should matter, and then you'd have at larges. And look, if teams get blown out, they get blown out in the first round. And, you know, it's unfortunate that you're going to get a one versus eight, not a one versus five. But on the flip side of it, we've seen a lot of teams who are like, it's close between the four and five team. And we've seen fours win. You know, what What I would be more concerned of is not, like, because I think it's not about the teams that are seven and eight. I think it's the teams that are about four and five and maybe six. I think there's been years where probably the number five team could win a national title. I don't, I'd have to go back and look. I, I don't know that that has been the case anytime recently. That being said, it is going to go to eight, maybe more. I don't know. And But the reason is is less about what's the best way to decide the national champion. I think it's if you're if that's your sole objective, it's fine the way it is. It's just that we're stuck in this, this kind of limbo land right now between the, the way bowls used to be so important and what they've become now. And so Oregon and Wisconsin are playing in the Rose Bowl this week. And I'm sure it'll get a big TV number. People, New Year's Day, we watch the Rose Bowl. That's, our, that's what we do. But it's not like people are around the country are all fired up. Oregon, Wisconsin, let's see them teed up. They just watched the biggest games this past weekend. So so you feel like the air is out of the balloon because of this? Yeah, I, and it was inevitable. As soon as they went to a playoff, everything else was going to lose a little bit of prestige. I mean... To, you, to use a, a, a probably not apt, but I'll throw it out there. Maybe it's extreme. But it's not like the NCAA and the NIT in a, for a college basketball sense. Not, not, no, not, well, it depends on which bowls you're talking about. I don't think the Rose Bowl is anything like that. But, I mean, Georgia is playing Baylor in the Sugar Bowl. And I don't, I don't, do you think Georgia fans care about this game at all? Yes, I do. You know why I think they care? Because they want to avenge last year's. Well, I think there's yeah. part of it is like we are tired of, you know, it is a tone setting game. You know, if I'm a, and I'm not saying Kirby Smart's on the hot seat by any stretch. But like, I think there's a lot of people looking around, going, "If we get embarrassed in this game, we got embarrassed by a Texas team that probably actually doesn't look so good right now." That program, we got blown out in our last time on the big stage by by LSU. I think I think these games do matter to fans because there's pride in it. At okay, I'll give fans, you there's pride. I'll give you a better example. I, I agree. Now that that wasn't a great example, Florida playing Virginia in the Orange Bowl, like they're excited. It's the Orange Bowl. It's a traditional bowl it's in their state but i'm guessing they were more fired up for the they probably cared more about winning beating that bad florida state team in the last game of the season than they do 
beating Virginia in the Orange Bowl. So all that's a way of just saying, like, I think in the future, the way you're going to keep those fans more engaged is if they feel like they have a shot at the main event, like that Oregon will be playing in the main event right now. Maybe they still lose the first game, but that's a bigger deal than the Rose Bowl. So that's why I think it'll eventually head to that. Jim Delaney, by the way, you know, we've gotten a lot of props for the interview with him. Uh, you know, we there were so many interviews with him around that time that we I don't think you and I were necessarily sure whether he said anything different than ours. But yeah, he actually definitively said there needs we need to expand. Um, I saw him on the field before the uh, Clemson-Ohio State game, uh, shook his hand. He seems very at peace and content with uh, the fact that He's down to his last few days as commissioner. Uh, a couple of things I just wanted to yeah. bounce off you now, and they're they're moving on from the playoff. They're both NFL related. Uh, one uh, is Matt Rule, and this is not a surprise, but he's expected to interview for the Panthers' head coaching job. Uh, I'm not saying either one of us has any great intel on this. Better chance he's gone. Better chance he's in Waco next season. Kind of depends, right? Is he the guy, or is he one of several interviewing for the job? I think he's one of several. Yeah. I guess I would still say back in Waco, but it seems like, I mean, these things keep coming up every year. It seems like, is he the college coach, or current college coach you think is most likely yes, to be an is. NFL head coach? Yes, he is. Lincoln Riley, I don't think is as likely to leave. And then after that, I mean, the only other name you hear a little bit is actually a guy who's not a college head coach right now. He's a He works at Fox Sports. Right, and I don't, I don't realistically think, you know, somebody's going to tab Urban Meyer and he's going to leave. So I think it's Matt Rule. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, and it's one of those ones where how, how, it would be hard to turn down. Not, nothing against Baylor. I he mean, does have a very sizable buyout. Okay, so I mean, Baylor's a good job. He's he he's led them to the better. brink of the playoff this year, but that's one of those programs that I'm sorry, no matter how hard you try, you're never going to win a national title at Baylor. And he's been in the NFL and uh, may find that very appealing. What other coaching carousel stuff are you keeping an eye on this week? Uh, lots of coordinator jobs that are open. Some of them really good. And so I did a story that went up Sunday afternoon on The Athletic about, look, the two best offseason hires last year. I don't think anybody questions these. Joe Brady to LSU, Jeff Halfley to Ohio State. Both of those guys came back to college football from the NFL. And so I have a bunch of na- a bunch of guys who I've heard are guys that are on people's radar. And I think when you start looking at, and I'm gonna throw it back to you because Clancy Pendergast and the special teams coordinator, John Baxter, got fired from USC after a debacle off from the Trojans uh, getting blown out by a good Iowa team. And I thought Iowa, you know, really, I think, flex their muscle in the holiday bowl but so usc now has is looking for a defense coordinator among other things uh oregon looking for an offensive coordinator jimmy lake looking for an offensive coordinator at washington uh pj fleck at minnesota looking for an offensive coordinator there's a few others you know jeff halfley still has a staff to hire bc miami is looking for an offensive coordinator after the short so of that list you you have on the go to the athletic for bruce's list of what 20 it's uh, 18 guys, who I, I and I think a bunch of these guys are in contention for that. Let me ask you, which one of those jobs, which one of those vacancies are you most curious about? And hmm. I'll tell you the one you should be the most curious about. Um, I was going to say Oregon OC. Was that the wrong answer? It's close to the right answer. I, the one I think is the most interesting one is actually the Washington OC. Okay. So Jimmy Lake is taken over. I, I think there'll be a lot of continuity, but I also think there will be a little more edge to it. Jacob Eason, as everybody knows, has moved on to the NFL. So we're going to see what, what, what kind of tone he wants to set offensively. One of the names that I think is, and he's the top guy on my list of this story, is Kellen Moore right? You know you that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, he's from Washington State. He's 31 years old. Has done a really good job with the Cowboys as the offensive coordinator and play caller. Uh, Dak Prescott has had his best NFL uh, season under him, and they have 2,000 yard receivers as well as obviously Ezekiel Elliott being very productive. Um, I've heard from some people that he's very intrigued by the idea of going back to college, but he's going to have a lot of opportunity in the NFL. Uh, 
he's really close to one of the guys, Junior Adams, who's the receivers coach at at Washington. They go back long, long time. Uh, Boise State is also open. Uh, Oregon is open. Yeah, so those are that's a lot of places that he has ties. I guess the question to. is, um, what what would it, would it make more sense to do that or? If he stays in FLOC for a couple more years and is good at it, would he would his next move to be a college head coach? I think you know what I think he's if he's in. It's what path do you really want to go? Because I think if whoever takes over the Cowboys' job, if it, if they have a coaching change, I would suspect they're going to want to keep him, and I would think there would be some other interest from other people. Could he be an NFL head coach in two or three years? Or if he does this. Uh, and goes to the college route, could it be a college head coach in two or three years? We've seen a lot of people really kind of get enamored with the offensive guru uh, guru guy. So to me, he is kind of the, the most intriguing character out there. If you had told me after his college playing career was over that he would one day be a college head coach, I would say totally, totally see it. If you told me he's going to be an NFL head coach, that I would not have predicted. It just seemed like he just he seems like kind of a you know humble small town kind of guy who becomes the head coach of the Washington Huskies. But obviously he's been in the NFL ever since as a player, now a coach, and he's having a lot of success. Another name on your list that intrigued me, just selfishly as a this was a guy I covered when I was first starting out, Ken Dorsey, uh, who is still relatively new to. Um, yeah, you remember? I don't know if you remember this, but like so Dorsey was at FIU where. Butch Davis, who was a big part mm-hmm. of his college career, and he had a great college career at Miami. Uh, he was an assistant AD there. Then he went with Eli Drinkwitz for a short period of time at the Appalachian State staff before getting hired away. And look, Josh Allen has really been a breakout star for the Bills. who have had a really good year. Dorsey's the quarterback coach. Miami needs an offensive coordinator. Now, the thing is, Ken Dorsey's not been a play caller, but he's done really well developing a very talented quarterback. I don't know what uh, what his next move would be. I mean, I think that he's on people's radar. I know he's on Miami's radar. And that's a big hire Manny Diaz has because that thing on offense like cratered in a hurry with Dan Enos. So is do you think Manny so I watched sadly I watched a lot of the Independence Bowl and it just just it was just staggering that they couldn't do anything on offense. Um, and then they, and then after the game, Blake James, AD, puts out a statement that's like carbon copy what he had to put out a year ago after the pinstripe bowl. Is Manny Diaz in, in that kind of dangerous Willie Taggart territory of like he just had such a bad first season, and the fans are so over him already that it, he's going to have to improve night and day in the second season? Because if that is the case. You might want to bring in Ken Dorsey just because he's a popular guy with the fan base, and it might take at least some of the the, the venom out for a little bit. Yeah, I, it's an interesting thing because you have to keep in mind also, let's say you have a new coordinator come in, you're probably going to have some new offensive staff to come in with it. And unlike a, some of the places we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, Miami's not going to pay an O-line coach $900,000. Right. And, and so... It's it's an interesting dynamic to see where it's going to go. I don't know, like so much of Miami is boom or bust, right? And I don't know if it's quite at the level where Willie was, but I will say this: there, you know, there's some some they should have a really good defensive line next year. I don't know what you look at on offense and say, okay, these are. These are real pieces in a building block for them to really get it going. I mean, he has got to go out and get a transfer quarterback. The, we've been watching these guys for two years now. It ain't happening. No, like, and the, the quarterback room really seemed like it was kind of a mess. And it's honestly, there's two areas I feel like Miami has been a mess for a long time. They've been really bad on the offensive line, probably, you know, since, like, you and I both lived in New York. And two... Uh, the quarterback play has just been. Brad Kaya was a decent quarterback, and he was accurate. He wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't uh, Jim Kelly or Bernie Kosar, but relatively, he was he was okay. Um, but beyond that, it's. I mean, they're a long way from being decent at the position. Yeah, there are. I mean, look, we know from last year there's going to be a surge of 
grad transfer or or transfer and get a waiver type. There's a few guys that are kind of in are they going to stay or not mode right now. I just talked to one of them last night, Chase Bryce. Is he going to get out uh, uh, get out of Clemson? We saw him. I mean, we haven't seen him that much, but we saw him lead them back and beat Syracuse last year. You know, somebody like that. Everybody thinks De'Ara King might still transfer from Houston. I don't know if that's well, KJ true or not. KJ Costello's out there. KJ Costello's out like somebody like that. And that Brown profile. from BC. Now both Anthony Brown and KJ Costello have been banged up pretty bad on the injury front. I, you know, it's going to have to be like Florida State's big grad transfer was Alex Hornerbrook, and that clearly wasn't that didn't save them. So I don't know. I'm not. I have no idea who this name is going to be. But if Miami goes into next season still banking on one of their current quarterbacks, it's it's going to be problems. I will make a quick prediction because I know okay. we got to go. But it's not just Miami. Who's going to be, there's going to be some schools with a lot more cachet and a lot a lot more going for them right now offensively who are going to be in the grad transfer market than just Miami. Does one of them rhyme with L S? Two, <laughs> uh, I don't know about that, but you know, look, Miles Brennan's a guy I think they think is is definitely got a strong arm, and I think they're going to see what he can do. And I know they like the two kids they signed who are early enrollees, but I think at this point, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if just about anybody who's not, you know, even if you're like Ohio State, you have Justin Fields for another year, and they signed two this year. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of teams that just. You know, you look at it like Oklahoma, they have two scholarship quarterbacks who are going to be there. But there's a difference between who you're going to be able to get if it's just to go get somebody for depth. There's like, nobody, by the way, I'm, I'm convinced there's nobody who's really a guy that you would want who you just want for depth who's going to come. Exactly. You're going to get um, Chris Chuganoff, right? The guy who has yeah, to Yeah, he was with. down at Florida yeah. Tech and he was going to open up. Like so, a yeah, I, I agree. Those schools probably do need another quarterback in their room, but they've got guys who are the future. These programs that need somebody right now are, are going to be really interesting to watch. Uh, all right, to wrap up, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Make your pitch. Red Box Bowl, Monday <laughs> afternoon. Tell people why they should tune in. Because uh, you will see the best beard in college football with Lovey Smith. And you will see the weave. Evan Weaver, come on. He's like... That's your best pitch right Evan there. Weaver is like the closest thing we've probably seen to the Boz. Evan Weaver is such a phenomenal linebacker who probably nobody east of the Rockies watched play this year. So that's, so that, watch that's probably your best sell right him. there. And yeah. also, Michigan fans, you can watch one of your old... Speaking of grad transfer quarterbacks, Bobby Smith really likes Brandon Peters. One thing he said to us in our call was... To him, grad transfers much grad transfers greater than sign JC transfers because Brandon Peters did forty credit hours in a year to graduate, and when you have to do that and graduate in three years, shows you got a lot of intellect, and they will he will roll the dice on kids like that. Well, I wish Lovey Smith better luck than he had against a in his last game against a two and nine team with the he was banged up. There was no offense. there was no there was no Brandon Peters. There was no. Man, you were you just jammed Northwestern's. Into did you everything. see? Did you see the stat that was floating around yesterday? Joe Burrow threw more touchdowns in the first half of that game than Northwestern threw all season. Oh, I thought you were going to say Joe Burrow threw more touchdown passes than than uh, Mick McCall has produced in the last five years or something. Then Mick McCall produced in twelve games in twenty nineteen. Isn't that insane? Uh, it's going to be a fun week. Just, I mean, there's so many bowl games this week. We. It, the way this thing worked out this year, yeah, we just watched the playoff, and now we got to wait 16 days for the championship. But in the meantime, we've got a full slate of games this week, including, obviously, New Year's Day. We'll come back later this week with a with an audible extra episode on the Athletic uh, after we get probably after we get through the the New Year's Day games. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link theathletic.com slash the audible that's 40% off your subscription to the athletic the dumbest things cause the greatest thrills it's in the past now I think
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.